The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Stop decorating your unit with attributes and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Rory Blythe. This is Jeff Maciolik here to announce show number 67 with guests John Alexander and Barry Gervin, recorded live Thursday, June 10th. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering hands-on VB.net and ASP.net classes remotely. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.net web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And by Dundas Chart for .NET. Advanced technology, advanced results. Online at www.dunduschart.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, Microsoft Technologies in-depth for IT managers and developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who was once told by a French waiter, no, you cannot put ketchup on the chicken, Carl Franklin. <laughs> oh, very good. That was for you, Roy. No, you cannot put ketchup on the chicken. You stupid idiot. Why don't we just bring the cool whip and we can spread it all over the floor for you? What do you expect me to do? Go deep fry ding dong and put it up the duck's bottom? <laughs> Why would you just like the cheese whiz on your cocoa bar? You stupid idiot. Stupid American. Yeah. Yeah, we're kind of unsophisticated, you know. How you doing, That's man? You know, I, I got to tell you, I'm sitting here. We just made a drive all the way out to the boonies, and we picked up the universe's cutest living organism and brought it back to our apartment. We just oh. got a long-haired chihuahua pup, 12 weeks old, yeah. and it's so incredibly adorable. I'm really not able to handle it. I mean, I'm trying to talk to you right now. So but does I'm it do the Peter Lorre kind of Taco Bell thing, you know, when you're not watching? No, no, There's a towel at the moon and go, yet. No. oh, no? No. <laughs> no, he doesn't talk yet. Chalupa. Yeah. <laughs> no, but he is really adorable. I I just can't even believe it. I can't even look at him right now. I can't What's his look name? The other way. We haven't decided on a name yet. Um, Corey wants to call him Castro, and I wanted to call him Little Pecker. But <laughs> we haven't really. Well, both of those actually work, you know. If you think about it, Castro, you know. <laughs> yeah. You didn't say the other one though. You said they both work, and then you just mentioned the first one. Well, Castro is the ob- see the Little Pecker is obvious, but Castro <laughs> takes a little more sophistication to understand that one. So I had to explain it. <laughs> 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 yeah. Aside from that, you know, it's been—it's actually been a—it's been a good week. I've been watching The Office. Have you heard of The Office? The Office? No. Is this a new reality show or something? 
No, 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 no. It's a, it's this BBC comedy that's kind of done in the same style as Spinal Tap, except oh, cool. instead of being about a rock band or something, it's about corporate life. Rory, I have to and ask you, did you find out about this because of me? Did I no, tell you no, about the actually, office? No, actually, no. Hey, did we ask you? Hey, shut office. up, Carl. Come on. <laughs> I thought I was the only person who'd heard of The Office, and this is this is like a big shock. It's like, huh. you know, it's like, hey, Rory, did you hear about that? And like, I named some article of clothing that's in your closet and you've never told anybody. Wow. Hey, Jeff, like, hey, Jeff, Jeff, there's this, there's this country <laughs> called England. Called England. And they all know about The Office. All right, I'll all go right, back well. in the sound you, room. <laughs> <laughs> you're like you're like that guy with the club shit. Oh, I saw them first. Yeah, real cool, man. Look, okay. a lot of people know. About, yeah, okay, a lot of people know about The Office. Uh-huh. Not so much over here, but it, it's catching on. And it's it, it's sort of like halfway between a reality show and a scripted show. And what's really really eerie about it actually is how accurate it is. It's just like corporate life and that's really what's so funny about it wow it's so sleazy and so nasty and just well i'm, I'm not gonna see too much about it but it, it's worth watching we'll have to check yeah, that so out that, that's that's been my week what's going on with you <clears throat> oh well uh this week i got a class going on here i got two of my uh students in the class here they're hanging out and cheering us on yeah. and uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> was that them or Should've... were you actually imitating them cheering us on i was a recording actually i was playing on a laptop in the corner so uh, uh, there yeah, that was okay. them actually <laughs> Yeah, Carl, go for well, laugh. I don't know how no get. Sink. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been yeah, it's been a good week. Uh, actually, Epicurean delight here. You know, they've been blown away by the food, and and uh, you know, this is something we've been pushing lately. But it hasn't changed since we started doing the class. We take you out to lunch at some great places. So so the fish tacos at Zavala were absolutely awesome. You went to Zavala today. Cool. No, we went to Russell's Ribs today, but yesterday we had these okay. fish tacos yeah. at Zavala. Crispy corn tortillas yeah. with fish and spicy stuff. Oh, man. They were insane. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Zavala. Uh, so we got some mail. We don't get too much mail, Roy, this week, but uh, yeah. we did get a couple. And one, we're going to have to bleep this. This is pretty bad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this one came from uh, Don Kralla. Kralla. K-R-H-L-A. I don't know how to pronounce your last name, Don, but anyway. He says, I hear you talk about X1 a lot on DNR. I was wondering something. I'm pretty sure no, but anytime I see the word gator on a website, I go into convulsions. X1 is in no way, shape, or form associated with the, and this is hyphenated, with the God, I hate that piece of shit, whoever came up with it should die a long, slow, painful gonorrhea, polio, Parkinson's death, gator, right? <laughs> I figure, this, this is the best part. I figure for $99, it couldn't be. But I know that son of a bitch gator could sneak into the ass of a 120-year-old without detection. <laughs> I love DNR, Dan wow. K. <laughs> yeah, that's saying bleep me all over it, didn't it? <laughs> and uh, we had another one. This one from a guy who we know, uh, Robert Cartwell from the Los Alamos National yeah, okay. Laboratory. He says, hey, Carl and Rory, thanks for the great shows. The long drives I have here in New Mexico. I live in Santa Fe and work in Los Alamos. Go by much quicker with all the info, laughs, and tunes from .NET Rocks, especially like Carl Prothman and Scott Hanselman. There you go, boys. I was wondering if you would consider addressing the topic of project management in one of your shows. Well, we all should be doing it, and I'm curious as to what uh, our practical approach is, especially for teams of, say, greater than five. Uh... I'm not talking XP, but all the traditional stuff from requirements, design, review, quality assurance, issue tracking, change control, configuration management, you know, project management versus being a cowboy. 
By the way, I'm the wheelchair guy from TechEd. Wouldn't mind if you gave me a shout out during one of the shows. Well, sorry, we're not going to do that. So uh, we'll just, uh, you'll have to settle for that. <laughs> oh, come on. What's up? What's up? How you doing, man? So that was a that was a nice surprise, but that's that was about it for the mail. Wasn't too I much th- happening. Know, I think he's right. I think that would make for a good show because I know that on on Chris Sell's off topic list, every few months there's like a project management thread that just goes on and on and on and on. Right. So there's definitely a desire to talk about this stuff. And we just got a yeah, we just stuff. got a taste of the team system too. So we'll. You know, as people get more experience with that, we'll definitely talk about it some more. And, you know, sort of what we're talking about tonight, unit testing, and that has a lot to do with with this. So, uh, but we'll, yeah. that's another thing. And so, uh, without any further ado, I guess now is the time in the show when we do a little segment we like to call the Google Weirdos. And if you don't know what the Google Weirdos are, check out the link on our website. So there you go. So Rory, <laughs> much, much easier this week. What are the shouts outs this week? Okay, the shouts outs this week. The first one is Rory Blythe. Would you please explain what Google Weirdos is all about? <laughs> <laughs> We didn't set that up. That just happened. Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty cool. No, we're not going So the next one is Rory Blythe. This is Google. Stop making fun of my weirdos or else. <laughs> the next one is, is a little weird. Good. It's 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 uh if you if you hear a little bit of yipping in the background, that's our new Chihuahua. By oh, I the thought way. that you were stepping on a balloon. Actually, <laughs> no, 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 that's the Chihuahua. <laughs> so uh, so the next one is. I think I should stop sending the Rory Blythe P.S. I am the guy saying the gay monkey thing. <laughs> I don't know what, what any of that means. What the hell is that all about? <laughs> gay no, monkey I really thing? don't know what that guy's talking about. I don't about. remember. I don't know what that's in reference to. Seriously. The next one, this is one of those nice ones. Um, Rory Blythe is a liberal bastard. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you tell a few people you think gay marriage is okay and you want to give everybody equal rights and all of a sudden you're a bastard. I don't know how that works, but that's <laughs> oh, cool. well. Whatever. Uh, next one is, hey, Rory, what disease do you have this week? <laughs> so that's, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> and I've actually got one. I've got a new one for you. Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. So I've actually got this new disease because um, it turns out that the medication that I'm taking for my facial numbness and to prevent the arterial spasming in my brain is also <laughs> a medication which is implicated in clinical depression. Ah. But doctors don't tell you this before they put you on it because it doesn't affect everybody. And they Wait a minute, does it make to... you depressed or does it cure depression? Yes, it makes you depressed. You're kidding. And so I'm that's why you left out. New London, you bastard. Well, no, you know what? It actually might be part of the reason I had a hard time there. I'm not wow. even kidding. Wow. Because I've been kind of listless and sort of apathetic and everything, and it's been since I started this drug. So although I can feel my face again, I can't feel my heart. Aww. <laughs> Everybody give me a big, aww. <laughs> or puke or whatever, you know. Yeah, but... whatever. Yeah, so that kind of sucks. I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna be getting off that stuff. Seeing my neurologist in a couple of weeks. Next one is Rory Blythe will die before he uses Linux. Jeff, could you jump <laughs> in here and and let's get defend. my back on this? Yeah, let's defend Rory. Rory well. has a shell account on my server. Uh, What's up? That that being said, uh, let me check his bash history. Oh, I think man. you'll be surprised. I think you'll be surprised, Hang Jeff. On, let's see. Uh, you will be very surprised. Let's see if I'm still proficient enough to figure this out. Well, let's see. Let's do sudo cat slash home slash Rory. Bunch of nerds. Slash dot. That's 
Like on Windows, you could have just clicked a couple of things. Yeah, really. No, no, no. Where's want, the right? I'm, I'm catting Find your, the button, uh, man. <laughs> I'm catting your history. Oh, wow. You did a bunch of stuff. No, wait. See? No, you didn't. Well, I mean, it looks like oh, I did the right. So you, moving you type, on. You type Netstat. Come on. <laughs> you logged on, type Netstat. I just, I just want to see what was going on. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I went on there and I did a who to see if you were online so we could chat, and you weren't online. Okay. Anywho, you, you hooed about six or so seven the, so times. This, <laughs> so the next shouts out is, I can't wait for .NET Rocks Live today, Rory Blythe. Finally, I can watch it. Watch it. That is you one know, disappointed listener out yeah, there. <laughs> I've seen. I've, I've read this on many occasions that people will email me and said, you know, I really got to get up there and watch it. And wow, that just. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, what it might be that it's just so imaginative that you, you know, you get such a sharp image in your mind that that's what they're talking about. I don't know. Then again, they could be smoking crack. <laughs> or so, so could we, we for that's that matter. The shouts outs. That's the shouts out. Are you frying the dog in the background there, or what is that? <laughs> no, that's the sink. Oh, okay. There's, there's a lot of um, puppy prep here. You know, we gotta got get the dog integrated with life. So that's the shouts out. So All here right. we go with the real Google weirdos. The true Google weirdos. The first one, somebody just searched for animal butts. <laughs> um, okay. You can probably just find that instead of like a six-piece chicken McNugget meal or something. You know, it's like the it's the little red dangling a bunch of rooster butts. It's all these stick in there. <laughs> You're talking about your experience at Russell's tongs. Ribs, right? Russell's ribs, no, yeah, no, pork no, butt, no. yeah, pork butt. It's disgusting. Never mind. Okay, it's so the next it's one, a food, man. You eat that, you vegetarian bastard? <laughs> no, you eat. Do you eat pork butt? Pork butt, yes, yes. That's so gross. Okay, that's really gross. Okay, it's incredible. On. Are you kidding? <laughs> so the next guys, one is, help um, me out here. Isn't pork like <laughs> barbecued pork butt? <laughs> Silence. <laughs> Jeez. So the next one is is men born with ovaries. And they're actually called women. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's kind of how that works. Um, yeah. Next one, and we might have to do a little bit of bleep in here. We got a bleep here right in the middle. So I'm, I'm warning you, okay? There's some sensitive language in this one. Just close the ears. Put the kids to bed real quick. You got five seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, here we go. He's a nutbag. Just because the fucker's got a library card, it doesn't make him Yoda. What? That was a Google search. <laughs> yeah. 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 Next one is, there is, if you don't mind my saying so, something sinister about men who avoid wine games, the company of charming women, and good dinner table conversation. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Get a life, man. <laughs> the next one is, I let men look at me in public restrooms. Okay. So I guess George Michael's out there Googling and stuff. The next one is how do Americans feel about outsourcing from India? From India? I didn't, I didn't even realize that actually when I wrote this down. But I mean, we can always rephrase this. You know, it's like how do Americans feel <laughs> about losing their jobs and their health care and their income and their houses? Yeah, really. Well, like India has good. anything to do with it, right? It's not India. Yeah, it's just outsourcing in general. Yeah. India is just like the general the catch-all nation for this stuff. Of the day. Next one yeah. is, I'm 20 and get spankings. Um, I don't, that, that's one of those Google confessional booth searches. And the last one is, <coughs> Google how can confessions. You make, yeah. How can you make a male's nipples longer? <laughs> Probably a car and some dental floss, you know, <laughs> tied to the bumper there. <laughs> oh, man, you're insane. <laughs> so that is the Google Weirdos. Oh my god, the sweet puppy is at my feet. Okay, that's the Google Weirdos for the week. <laughs> we 
Weirdos, 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 so Rory, our guests today, uh, two guests, both happen to be regional directors, John Alexander and Barry Gervin. John is a recognized Microsoft certified trainer and Microsoft certified solution developer and has served as the regional director for the Kansas City region for the last five years. Gesundheit. And the... As the .NET practice manager at Vision Data Solutions, an industry leader in developing enterprise solutions, John is experienced in the delivery of scalable, stable, and open enterprise-level .NET web applications. In addition, does it, does it really sound like I'm just sort of rambling this off the top of my head? In addition, John has written Microsoft official curriculum and speaks at industry conferences such as VBits, VB Connections, and Developer Days. And... Uh, and Barry Gervin is a principal consultant and instructor with Object Sharp. He's a technical leader with over 15 years experience helping development teams design and build large software projects. Barry is skilled in the architecture, design, and development of databases and distributed systems. Barry is also a Microsoft re- regional director, and he is in the uh, Toronto, Ontario area. Hey, guys, what's up? Hey, this is my first. Excellent. Your first what? <laughs> my first uh, radio show. No kidding. Cool. Mine too. Yeah, that, that dog's got to go, man. <laughs> yeah, we're we're uh, we're moving him to the other room. Okay. It's my first internet radio excited. show with a chihuahua in the background. <laughs> <laughs> mine, mine too. Okay. You never know what you'll hear on .NET Rocks. That's true. So, so John, your bio left out your books. You've written a, you've written a couple books, or you've worked oh, yeah. on a couple books. Yeah, I've written uh, two books on on .NET around Visual Basic.net. Uh, one is designed more for Visual Basic 6 developers trying to move to ASP.net. It's, pro, it's uh, published by Wiley Press. Yeah. And the other one is uh, published by Microsoft Press, and that with another RD, Ken Spencer. Uh-huh. And that's around building uh, reusable components with uh, Visual Basic.net. So we walk through an entire kind of frame, design kind of a framework and then put it all together for a fictional HR site. And you had some great comments out on Amazon.com. I went out and I looked and saw what people were saying. And sounds, yeah, they say your really book doesn't, doesn't totally suck. So that's a good Amazon comment. You know? Yeah, I, did, I wrote a couple of books too. And I lived, I lived by Amazon comments for a while. And man, you just can't go there. Yeah, you, know, you, you, you kind of walk in for the go. first month like, like the stock market, you know? Right, it's true. But, uh, Anytime you give somebody an anonymous way to comment on anything, right? it's, it's trouble. Yeah. And Billy it's Hollis also worked with you on this uh, ASP.net oh, book, yeah. is that right? Yeah, Billy, Billy and I did the, did the first book um, called um, Developing Web Apps with uh, Visual Basic.net and ASP.net. And, um, yeah, Billy did about half that book with me, and we had a great time doing it. So he's in, Billy Hollis is the uh, Nashville RD. Regional director. The National Regional Oh, Nashville. Nashville. I'm sorry. Nashville. Nashville, Tennessee. Yep. yep, yep. We've had him on the show a couple of times. Good guy. So you're all about... Uh, so So let me just uh, start off this way with my Andy Rooney impersonation. You ready for this? Sure. Great. So what is a unit anyway, and why does it need to be tested? What do you think? Is that good? That was great. That's not bad. I'm, yeah. I'm spellbound now. Who was that? Was that was that was that Rory? No, that was me. <laughs> yeah, I can't really do impressions. I'm bad. He does a good Chihuahua, though. He does do a great <laughs> Chihuahua. So anyway, getting back to unit testing. So let's um, yeah, let's introduce that topic. Let's do. Um, basically, 
unit testing is part of something called test-driven development. And some people call that test-first programming or test-first development. And so basically what it is is that you, it forces you to kind of break up your programming into really small parts. And basically you think about what you want to do and then you think about what the output should be of whatever you're trying to test. Usually it's a function. And then you write a test to prove that, and then you write the code for it. Okay. So you write the test first, and obviously that test is going to fail, and then you write the code to make the test work. Hmm. Oh, okay. That's why they call it test-driven, because the That's test right. comes before the code. Right. And there's a couple of, there's a couple of major views of test-driven development out in the, in the world. And one of, one of those, um, and actually the guy that developed um, one of the major test-driven development automated testing tools called NUnit, Jim Newkirk, um, kind of says that test-driven development's goal is more like thinking through your specification and uh, kind of thinking through your design before you uh, write your functional code. And then um, other people think of it as, as more like a programming technique itself. So you're using that to really to really design and, and build your programs at the same time. Yeah. And so uh, I think, you know, you can go either way with that. But either way, what it's trying to do is to get you to clean code that, that really works. Yeah. Instead of just writing a, a big, huge bunch of code and then God, God help you when you start testing it. Oh, there's another bug. There, there's one over there. We should also probably say that NUnit didn't just um... – get created in a vacuum that no no not at all not at all it's a it's a port from a um a family of tests called x unit x unit testing tools and um j unit was the first one and it was written to start this out in the java programming language right and it was done with a you know a bunch of people putting it together wasn't there a uh wasn't there a derivative of uh that in Smalltalk before java uh, probably, actually, yeah, I, I, I believe think, so. I think that's where it came back from. In, um, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. would have done some small talk uh, test harnesses anyway. And a lot of people have called, you know, these X units uh, prior to them being calling N unit or J unit or whatever, um, test harnesses, just, you know, it's simple code. And and to be fair um, to the methodology of test first coding and N unit or separating them is that you don't actually have to write your test first. And probably people kind of evolved. They kind of started just writing test harnesses for existing code. Um, to, you know, call the function, check. I was going to say, you know, this, is, this was my MO when I was uh, began writing software where most of the people I knew who were developing software had a spec and they wrote the whole thing. They got every line of code, you know, theoretically, supposedly ready to work, and then they'd go and run the thing and find the bugs. Whereas me, I would develop one function at a time and then call that function and see if it worked. And, I mean, there, it's not test-driven because I didn't write the, the calling code first, but... But yeah, you're doing the same thing though. You're That's testing the, the code and, and and testing it in small chunks right. and verifying that it's actually working yeah. before you move to the next thing, right? Yeah, and it's just that there isn't a. I didn't use a tool. I just yeah. yeah. Well, the the reason for using the tool, of course, is you can you can generate you can have this whole suite of tests that test all of your code, at least the public interface to all your code, and then if you decide to change something. Um, if you have like tests for everything, um, you can and you you get to you know your second or third iteration and you say, well, you know what, we should have written that object a little bit differently, or you know it should have had an ancestor, or it should be using this other helper class instead right. of doing all the work itself. You can totally refactor your code and run the tests and make sure your public objects and methods um, still work the way you expected them. So you can totally rip rip everything apart, run your tests when you're done, and go, oh, okay, it all works. 
yeah, basically the, the one of the powers of this is, is that no matter which way you go, either you write the test on the front end or the back end, you're te- you, you have this suite of tests that build as you build your app. And so as you change or as you, as you grow your app, each time you make a change, you, run it, you can run all those tests again and, and verify that you haven't screwed anything up. So let's, uh, let's put some meat on the bones here for the listeners whose interests we've piqued. So the, the end unit testing tool, what does this do? Does it generate the testing code automatically based on the, the functions? No, it's a, actually it's a, it's a framework that you utilize and it comes with a... So give me a, give me a typical walkthrough of how I would do this. Okay. Well, say for example, you were gonna um, you were gonna build a project, and and the first thing you might do um, if you're building a class is you'd you'd want to create a test that just shows that the class is there. Okay. So you'd start out and you'd import your your after you downloaded end unit and everything. Obviously, you'd import your your end unit framework into a class. Oh, into the code that you're testing. You could you could do it that way, but normally people will create a separate class for the test itself. Interesting. And you have um, several different pieces of this framework. Um, one's called the uh, the text the uh, test uh, fixture, and that's the heart really of the test. And uh, so anyway, you you build this test fixture, and you, and you try to you use an assert statement to test the class. Well, after you build that after you build that fixture inside of your test suite, if you will, you have a suite of tests. Um, you build your you build your app. And then you can run the way end unit works is then you run end unit and point it to your DLL and through reflection it goes out and grabs your tests and runs them through the code or runs them through the end unit um, test harness. So, all right. So, so basically, I'm hearing you right. If I'm hearing you right, you're saying I import the the test the end unit stuff into my class and then I just load up the class in end unit and and it magically just yeah, you build the you build the class first into into a DLL. Okay. And you load up you load up the DLL, you point end unit to the DLL. Right. And then it utilizes it runs those test fixtures and if text? you're using the, the GUI, yeah, it'll give you a green that says, Yeah, the test ran or a red that says no it didn't, or a yellow to say the te- you know, there was no coverage or the test was ignored. Okay. Actually, um, in uh, prior versions of, uh, in the initial versions of NUnit and prior XUnit derivatives, you'd actually have to create your test fixtures inherited from another class, um, like a test fixture base. And right. then, um, so what would happen is when NUnit loaded up your assembly, and your assembly would have, typically have just your tests in it, um, your test fixture classes. Um, it would use reflection or, you know, whatever the development platform's technique for doing that is called. Right. And it would say, oh, that, I have all these classes that are marked as text fixtures. And then those text fixture classes, they would all contain methods. And those um, methods, those public methods with a given signature would be recognized as tests. So it actually lists them out in the GUI. It's saying, here's a list of tests under each of these classes. And then, you know, you just hit, there's like a play button on the on the end unit console on the GUI. And it, it iterates through all of those um, methods in your class, executing them. And, you know, unless something is detected that's wrong, you know, you get a green circle on that test to say, hey, that test fa- pa- um, passed. But I guess the key is you don't have to write the code to call the functions. That's what it does. Yeah, you don't call the code to call right. your tests. 
Yeah. Right. Your test call has code in it that calls your class, your base class that you want to test. And then it'll color code you with shapes or whatever if it yeah. failed. Or and, if it and, failed. and the way you tell the, the, the console, the GUI console, the Indian console that there's a problem is you have this assert class. And you say assert that this is true. And you give it some Boolean expression that you cool. expect, like the class is not a null reference, you know, or right. the, uh, the right. function returned 10 or whatever you have, whatever you expect. And as long as those asserts are true, then, you know, the whole test shows up as green. Cool. So did uh, it, are there other tools out there besides NUnit? I know that we've talked about the team system, which has some testing stuff in it. But, uh, for, for example, have you uh, heard of this uh, SOAP test, SOAP tester, you know, Parasoft's uh, for web service testing? Uh, web key, I think it's called, like, Web King or something like that. That's a different one. I'm thinking of Parasoft's tool, but. Parasoft's got one called .test. Right. That's the one I'm familiar with as well. Okay. I was thinking of the soap tester they have for web services. I'm going to guess what that's like. I'm familiar, or maybe you <laughs> you can jump on it, but okay. dot, test, dot test is an interesting tool. You don't actually write the tests. Okay. Um, it, it, lo- it looks at your classes, your business components, and the methods on them, and then it just fires sort of random data based on some algorithms that it has um, to see that they don't, you know, pooch entirely. Um and, and they have some patterns for you know certain types of methods and, and certain types of components. And you can you can change the the algorithms about how it goes about um, uh, testing things. And but and, uh, and actually one of the neat things about that tool is that um, all the tests that it generates, which are, are really just kind of some smoke testing, is that it will actually export those as any unit tests if you want hmm. uh, their dot test product, which is pretty neat. And then you can go and edit them and tweak them however you want. So I've, I've got a question along some slightly different lines. Um, whenever, whenever I'm talking to people about unit testing, the one thing that I usually wonder about is where does this fit in into the overall uh, like testing scenario or QA scenario, right? I mean, is this something where you have to have uh, XP methodologies like in your workplace to, to, to make use of it, to make sense of it? Or is this something that you can just incorporate into your existing system and, and get some benefit up from? Um, XP, um, as a methodology, pretty much relies on this um, mm-hmm. as, as part of its methodology because you don't really write any specs up front. Um, you, uh, you know, you're, you're, if you do test-first coding as part of XP, which is it's kind of what it implies, you really need a tool for automating these tests. Yeah, I'm thinking more, though, about shops that aren't actually XP shops, where you have more traditional, you know, you write the code, you pass it on to the QA department, the QA yeah. department goes through it, they pass it back, they file some bug reports, and, and, and you're doing everything according to a spec, and so on and so forth. I mean, it's, yeah. I, I've seen unit testing used in, in this situation. Absolutely. The idea is that a developer has a spec, and how do they know they've met the spec on building a component is they write an in-unit test, and they can prove it to the world, say, hey, my test ran. Right, and there's a there's another really um, the the level of tests that you're talking about, Rory. Really, is something called either customer tests or acceptance tests. Sure. At that point, where you run your unit tests to make sure that the code functionally works, and then you run uh, use a tool like the Fit tool um, or Fitness, which allows you to code up what you expect the you know as a user what you expect the input to look like, and run it to make sure that that it's uh, it's validating based on what the what the user or the QA department expects. Okay. Cool.
Well, it is my extreme pleasure to introduce to you a new sponsor for .NET Rocks, and I'm talking about Dundas Charts. And these guys make chart controls for ASP.NET and for Windows Forms applications. 100% managed code. Let me just lay on some features here for you, and then I'll give you some great testimonials from their customers, some of whom you already know. Uh, great features. 100% fully managed code. Great looking charts. They can render in a bunch of formats, including Flash and SVG animation. Full object-oriented design, as I said, 100% managed code, no p-invoke, no ActiveX. They're fully integrated into Visual Studio with full IntelliSense. You can get just about 99% of everything you need in two or three lines of code. Drag, drop, boom, bam, you got your charts. Uh, you, Of course, if you're into customization, you can customize to your heart's content. These are not just static charts, they're controls, so they're interactive. Some have scroll bars, some have little sliders that you can move up and down. You have really cool things like animation, you have uh, splines, you've got scrolling, and uh, 3D, 2D, this D, that D, just every, anything that you can think of in charts, they've got it. So the key to enjoying and understanding Dundas Chart is to go up to their website and download an, a fully functional evaluation copy. This isn't something that's going to blow up or, or stop working after a while. It's fully, fully functional. The only caveat is they've got their watermark across the graph. Other than that, you can do everything that you can do with the, with the uh, release version. Fully functional. And now let me tell you about some of their customers. Microsoft uses Dundas Charts for .NET technology and SQL Server 2000 reporting services. CompuWare uses Dundas Chart technology within Dev Partner Studio. NetIQ uses it. Siemens uses it. Check out this quote from uh, Ben Haraway at Siemens. Overall, Dundas Chart for .NET was a blessing. From the free trial to the easy installation, exceptional documentation and examples, great output and customization ability, and then the icing on the cake, helpful and persistent support staff. We were very happy with every aspect from Dundas, and there is no doubt we will look to them for solutions in the future. Uh, Jonathan Goodyear from AngryCoder.com says, The first thing that struck me as I dropped the Dundas chart control onto a web page for the first time was the clean, well-done wizard that immediately popped up. Chris Sells says, Not only was the Dundas chart more than full-featured enough, but the documentation was definitely geared toward getting a charting newbie started fast. John Maver from CompuWare Corp. says, I don't think I could imagine a better experience with a third-party vendor. Brian Welker from Microsoft says, Our developers like the fact that they have full control over the chart features through a well-designed managed code API. And um, when we interviewed Stephen Forte on .NET Rocks, geez, a long time ago now, uh, he told us about a, an application he wrote for Zagat online survey. He did their website. He redid their whole website and used Dundas everywhere. And he, was, he made a point of saying on that show how excellent um, these charts were. And that was back then. It was a couple years ago. So, here's the deal. Go up to www.dundaschart.com. That's D-U-N-D-A-S. D-U-N-D-A-S, chart.com. Download a free evaluation copy. Tell them Carl sent you. And uh, rock and roll with charts. Dundas Charts. Advanced technology, advanced results. You mentioned uh, extreme programming or XP a bit, and didn't Kent Beck, you know, one of the fathers of XP, have something to do with NUnit? 
Um, no, N Unit was written, or uh, I think ported from J Unit by uh, Jim Newkirk. Okay. Probably Pool. There's just a quote, yeah. a quote from Kent back on the N Unit org yeah. website, so I thought there was some connection there. He he, the predecessors in J Unit and the Small Talk. Yeah, he he was more with J Unit and Small Talk. That's I right. I see. I see. Cool. Well, uh, and and of course, you know, I'm I'm just trying to. You guys are zooming in a bit. I want to zoom out. The the whole idea, if I hadn't said it already, to reiterate, the whole idea with this is to you know make code that doesn't fail. And the, is there any uh, studies or any any documentation that's been done, or any studies or case studies that prove that test driven development is you know more rock solid than your typical uh, methodologies? Actually, there have been a couple of there have been a couple of um, studies done. I don't have them right here in front of me. One, I believe, was out of um, Calgary, which is uh, hmm. you know up there by up by there up by Barry up there, and basically uh, pro- uh, showed that that test driven development utilizing uh, folks that really hadn't had any any main um, experience with TDD was uh, really effective in uh, building some of the uh, test software that they had in the study. Or I should say the test case software they had in the yeah. study. Do you know if it has a tendency to uh, lengthen developer cycles or shorten them or hmm. what, if it has any that, effect? That, that's a good point. I, I really do find that in early stages, test-driven development, or actually it's not even test-driven. I mean, just testing, automating your unit tests takes longer. Right. Um, but, the, the, I mean, you've all seen this problem where you get to 90% of your projects. You know, the developers right. all say we're 90% of the project, and yeah. it takes ha- <laughs> half as long to get to that last 100%. Right, sure. And projects that I've seen in unit testing, that last 10%, it takes 10%. Um, right. You don't get these gotchas. You're not fixing a bug and breaking something else and, you know, not finding it out until it goes to the testers. I think one of the other important things to mention about end unit testing is is we're getting pretty componentized in our development. Um, you know, a few shops I'm working with, they have developers who they do nothing but develop data access layers. Other developers build business components, and other developers build UI, and other developers are building web services. How do you test a business component? You know, if you're building a VB6, um, you know, client server type of application, you run it, you type some stuff into a talk, text box, you hit OK, and, you know, it does what you think it does. Right. But if you're building a component, you need to actually write some code to test it. Sure. So NUnit gives you a really good framework for putting that in there so that that's, that's an asset after you've actually developed the code and the test is passed. You can keep running that test right up to the end of your project. Well, and the other thing is even after the end of your project, say, for example, you move on to a different project and somebody else takes over for your maintenance, they have the suite of, co- of code tests right there that they can really see what the code is doing and what the intent of the code actually is supposed to be. In, in the, the actual tests... All right, well, in the unit testing that I've been exposed to, and maybe I haven't seen it done like in an expert fashion at all, but the tests often seem a little bit contrived to me. Um, now, what I'm wondering about is is where is where's the real benefit? It almost seems to me like the process might be even more valuable than the test itself, because it seems like the process might cause you to be a bit more vigilant about how you're putting everything together. It might, be, it might cause you to be a little bit more aware of what's actually going on within your code. And just seeing the little green dot light up is sort of like icing on the cake. Mm. I mean... I think that's the difference between um, um, test-first coding and test-last coding. Right. Um, you know, test-last oh, coding, they, they write the code component, they've got some methods on what they think they need in the component, and then they start testing, and they're like, oh, okay, I put in two numbers, do they add up, you know, whatever. And they seem a little contrived. 
One yeah. of the things you get with test-first coding is that you, you you don't think about the component in the entire public interface or what it's supposed to do or the implementation of it first. You think about the component you've got to develop from the consumer of it. Yeah, that's you know, a good I've got point. an object, and this is what it should do. I mean, you've probably done this with the .NET framework. You've thought, hmm, I wonder how the XML serializer works. And, you know, you just start looking at the methods, and you kind of figure out what it's supposed to do from the API. So you kind of think of a your business component or your data access layer, wherever it is you're creating, and think of how I would use it or in what's the scenario I need to use it. Everybody's done that where they make a, a function that has six overloads, but you're really only interested in the first three. And those other those last three overloads are just like, yeah, yeah, we'll get to those someday. You yeah. Know? So you don't test them and you just go ahead and code and you only and you don't even run the all six overloads. You maybe just run your code against the first one. And then you you just assume, oh, well, those are just overloads. You know, those will those will be fine because they're you know less complex than the full overload that takes nine thousand parameters. So that's the only one I'm going to call. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so everybody's done that. So I guess you know if I was doing this from a test driven, I would have the tests for all six of those overloads, and and then I would fill right in the code and run the test. So so there's no way that the test isn't going to get run. Right, and the and you know the the point I think that, that Barry's trying to make is that when you have to write the test first, it forces you to think through the logic of the code itself. Yeah, and I then after what... you write the test, you know the asserts that you want. Is it you know if you're doing like um, a listing of countries, or if even if you're even if you're trying to do it with a database, you know what's the first step? Well, maybe I'm going to test my entity, and then I'm going to test you know, another entity, okay, well then, gosh, what's the next step? Well, then I'm going to test the relationship. I think that's what Rory was saying, too. You know, that it's more like the process of writing the test first forces you to... Right. Yeah. Yeah, when you get into that groove, and, um, I mean, one of the ways you can start getting into that is you take a use case, and you pretend you're the you're the actor, and you write the code from the from the actor's perspective, you know. And there's probably a whole bunch of people who know nothing about what you're saying right now. <laughs> So um, use cases are one way of, of uh, uh, in plain English, describing how um, a human or another system interacts with the thing that you're building. Yeah. The sort of inputs and the expected outputs. And it's really just and the a actors are the actors are the, the things involved, the calling code and yeah. the unit or whatever. So, I mean, it's usually like a six, of, you know, they're very happy day type, types of specs. So, you know, it's like I, I put in this two numbers, I get this result back, I you know, add something else to it, I get this back. So you can almost walk through that and write an end unit test, yeah. uh, you know, the various steps. And that does two things. I mean, yeah, it makes you think about the actual component and how you write it. Um, it actually documents your spec a, a lot more um, stringently than, you know, the English language is going to uh, give people a lot more flexibility. And, were, you and, guys and, at, were you guys at our um, Tech Ed BOF session where, where Bob Russellman showed up? He was yeah. actually on the show. Huh? Do you remember the thing that he was talking about that just really kind of blew me away? Is that taking it from object design from a writer's perspective? Mm-hmm. He said, you, know, you just rigging a light and and really trying to trying to build a metaphor of the you know the way that motion pictures are created versus the way. Well, actually, I, yeah, that was cool too. But I was more thinking of how you know if you get a business person to write the use case down in clear, easy to understand English, you go through and you find the nouns. Mm-hmm. And those are the objects, right? And then you find the verbs, and those would be the methods. Yep. Yeah, that's a, one of the things that if you get <laughs> back really to cool. to, yep. to XP extreme programming, one of the ways that you start is that um, that you you get somebody assigned to the project that's that's that really knows the business, 
and you sit uh, you sit with them and and come up with the priorities of the features that they want, and then you just work through those and say, okay, um, as we build this, then we're we're really going to do this, and we're kind of branching off here, so forgive me, but we're we're going to okay. instead of taking all the features and planning them and developing them and stabilizing them, we'll take some of the features and, and pick a, a period, maybe like two or three weeks, and do a build on that, see, you know, estimate how much we're going to get done within two or three weeks, do the build on that, and show the user that, and, and then we move on and we just keep iterating that process that the user has working code through each build, and we just keep building on that. And then at any point in time, the user can take those list of features or as in XP, they're called user stories, and uh, change them around or decide, nah, we really don't need one that one at this time. And so with the, the whole test-driven development aspect and then the short de design and development cycles, um, users find that pretty compelling once they get into it. Did, um, did XP get a bad rap? Did XP get a bad Does rap? Does XP get a bad rap? Um, can I answer that? In a, can I ask that in a slightly different way, Carl? Because I, I think... Sure. I, I kind of have. I, I was just thinking about that exact thing, and and I don't know if this is what you were thinking, but um, in t in terms of development, it seems like every couple of years or so we have like a new fad. We have a new thing that gets everybody really really excited. You know, like XML was that for a while, and obviously we still need XML, and it's a very good thing, and and it fits into our daily lives. But it's it's not the incredible incredible thing that everybody was making it out to be, right? Is that kind of what you're getting at, Carl? Because that's kind of what I was wondering. Well, myself. sort of, but more specific, yeah, I was. I was thinking that uh, sort of as a fad, but maybe uh, I'm sort of thinking that there's more there and that right. in the, you know, I, I talked to some people about XP and there's some people who I whose opinions I respect say, you know, it's bullshit. It doesn't work. And I think that we've talked about, we've talked about it with other people on the show, but it but I really want to reiterate that the certain aspects of XP, particularly pair programming, uh, only work in certain circumstances. And I think that's what that's what I'm getting at. That, mm -hmm. but, but the XP in and of itself has far more techniques and uh, and processes to it than just pair programming, which is where you get two people on a set of uh, on one code at one chair, one computer, and they look one looks over the other's back and over the other shoulder, and uh, and there you go. So that's what I'm getting at. What do you think about that? Well, Barry, you want to take that since I've been talking? <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, uh, I think XP has failed some people, and and uh, I think part of the reason of that is they didn't accept it whole hog. They they really used it more of an excuse not to do a lot of other things that they traditionally did, like writing a lot of upfront mm -hmm. specs, um, doing UML class modeling, stuff that, you know, you know, other other methodologies that have questionable artifacts that are generated during the whole design and development process. And, um, you know, if you don't do, uh, uh, you know, complete unit testing with XP, it kind of fails, right? Because one of the things you get from that is, is a, a concept of being able to refactor mercilessly, <laughs> you know, being able to totally change um, my objects later on and how they're implemented and not have to worry that my system is going to break because I've already got oh, full okay. tests on the public interface. Um, so if you don't do the unit tests, you can't refactor mercilessly. And if you can't refactor mercilessly, then you, um, you're really forced in thinking about your objects to their full completion and what they really need to do throughout the entire life cycle. 
So one of, one of the principles of XP is that you do the simplest thing that could possibly work. And when a developer tries to do that, he thinks, well, you know, four iterations from now, I'm going to be able to need to do this, 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 and this, and I need this underlying plumbing in, in, in place. So you've done this, you've worked on a project, and you work for the first six months, and your application does nothing. All you're right. building is all this infrastructure and plumbing, and the idea behind XP is like, look, forget about that. You know, we can refactor our code and you know, totally change the internal implementation, create a class hierarchy later on, because we know we've got in-unit tests, and they're going to they're going to test everything. So we can totally change anything, everything and not be worried about it. Um, yeah, so you don't do the unit tests, it all sort of breaks down. Paired programming is one of those things that, I mean, it's probably one of the things that you can drop out of XP the most easily without, you know, wrecking the whole thing. Yeah, I'd probably, I would agree with that. Another thing that I'd also say is that, you know, um, developers like to code, period. And they don't really like specs. They, they just want to go, go, I mean, at the basic point, we just our that. fingers itch, right? Oh, yeah, it's and we true. just want to start. We just want to start going and and going for it. But the thing is, um, you know, XP has worked in some situations, maybe in some some that it hasn't. And I really wasn't a believer until I got on a on a pro, a pretty large project, and um, we worked through we worked through a lot of a lot of uh, interesting problems, and were able to overcome them by the unit testing the uh, the short the short build cycles so that we were always we really always pretty know pretty much knew where the code was at any given point in time well uh john contrary to uh what i just said before the mark and joel the guys that are in my class that are in here their eyes lit up when i talked about pair programming they've actually had some success with that so one uh let me just introduce you guys here uh go ahead so so you are mark friedman mark and and joel joel leitner joel leitner all right, uh, so so you guys do pair programming together? Yeah, we've been we've been doing it for years. Um, the thing I would say about it is that it, it's it's like any other kind of partnership that some work and some don't. Uh, right, we, we've been working together for a long time, um, and you know, so we really know each other's styles and everything else, and we can work well together. That's sort of what my and, impression was about pair programming: is that it, for per certain personality types, it works, and for others, it's disastrous. Right, it, it, it's like a marriage or a business partnership. Some people just can't partner, and they shouldn't try. Um, yeah. So I think a lot of people have, have found failures, but you know, it, it's like in any kind of, of pairing, right. you're going to have failures also. I don't think it's anything against the technique or the concept. And if you guys weren't pair programming, you'd be much less productive, you think? Oh, yeah. I, yeah. Think, I think we've we've gotten a hell of a lot more done a lot quicker in the projects that we've done when we've done pair programming. I've tried pair programming with other people where I am right now. And this some people works fine with some people. I, there's no way I can work with them. Like yeah, that. right. But we can absolutely see that there are times when, you know, he, he's coding and I'll say that's not going to work. And then he takes a second look at it. And, you know, we, we catch bugs that would have been in the code way before, uh, you know, hmm. th- we get to the point where we even have to test it just by having a second pair of eyes. Wow. Rory, you had a question? Yeah. Well, first of all, Mark, I just wanted to say hi. It's cool to finally get to talk to you, you yeah. know, um, um, hey, in person. Yeah, he's Mark a big fan. Communicating over email for a while. Yeah. And uh, two, now, all methodology questions aside, here's something else that's been on my mind since the first time I ever heard pair programming mentioned, and it's how do you get management to let you take four eyeballs and stick it on one set of code, right? Because, I mean, in, in this day and age, like when people are kind of scaling back, well, actually, it's not so bad anymore, but there's still going to be budgetary issues and people raising eyebrows and things like that. How do you sell this to management? Um, <laughs> you don't tell them. Yeah, <laughs> that was going to be my idea. Yeah. <laughs> you, get, 
you get together and you know you're we're looking sort of over each other's wind stuff up at each other's cubicles and right. you're working together and you're and you're both being productive management doesn't necessarily know that uh this is why you're being more productive well, i don't, I don't know if that's the answer everybody wants actually, to hear we're not spending eight management hours a day can sometimes yeah. be Management can be so screwed up. They're willing to bet that if you said you were on a coffee break instead of saying you were coding together, that would be okay. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There so. are guys that if they see us together in the same cubicle, they're like, you know, why are you wasting your time? You know, two of you doing one yeah. thing. Right. But, you know, it can be actually with two of you instead of each doing one, the two together could be doing three things. It's uh, You're saving on hardware costs at that point. There you go. Uh, <laughs> what uh, – <laughs> Let's uh, let's be. Let, I want your you guys' insights. What kind of personality doesn't work? Pers- you know, programmer mm. persona doesn't work in in extreme in pair programming. The uh, person that you know, the prima donna. Yeah, that doesn't want <laughs> that doesn't you know doesn't want to you know doesn't want to admit anything. Um, that person doesn't work. Right. When I first started doing this, I I was very much like those guys. I had a, another programmer that I'd worked with before, and, and uh, one of us was on the keyboard, and the other one of us was on the mouse, and we were just kind of, you know, kind of without really even talking, knew exactly where the other one was going. So in those cases, wow. it works really, really great. Right. It's almost like a jam session. You know? Yeah, it is. Two guys, are, you know, playing the same instrument, and uh, it can work really well with four hands on a piano. Mm. Yeah. Okay. It, it doesn't always have to be two coders either. Um, oh. You can get a QA person in a developer paired programming. Or a percussionist. <laughs> yeah, a percussionist. <laughs> I could use one right now. A QA person. How about a, uh, how about a business uh, Absolutely. Analyst? Absolutely. It doesn't work when, it, when you get a QA person and a business person, though. One of them, oh, has, yeah. one of them has to be a programmer. One's got to go. You guys are all serious about one hand on the mouse and, and the other person on the keyboard? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We did it. Um, and it, actually, when we first started doing this, I hadn't touched Java in quite a while. And the first day uh-huh. of the class was totally in Java. And uh, both of us had been working quite a bit with C Sharp. So we did, we just went for it. And, you know, I had the mouse part of the time. And he had the keyboard. And Do you guys do that with a mouse and the keyboard? We've, we've, done, we've done it. We've yeah. stepped on each other like that sometimes. Does that that's work? We're doing copy and paste. But that's <laughs> – so, Sometimes it really – you can really fly doing things that way. But yeah. I, I think you have uh-huh. to have been working together for a while. Yeah. You know, in order sure. to, to get back to go, yeah. Wow. But you can really actually, um, well, okay, when you're doing paired programming, if it, and I think this is where Kent Beck and some of the other guys were, were going with this, you know, Scott Ambler or whatever, when they talk about this, the power of paired programming is the fact that if you've got two developers there that are synergizing on what they're doing and really understand what the other guy's doing and, and where we're going with that, it is like a jam session in the fact that you can just start um, really really playing off of each other's ideas and, you know, you start doing some code and you think, no, we need to refactor that. And the fact that, you know, this, uh, this function is doing three or four things. And, um, we really want that to be just a single use responsibility function. So you pull out the subordinate code and just make that where it used to be, um, a function call yeah, and pull that on down and just, and and basically that's what refactoring is all about. You know what, that, that sort of takes balls, doesn't it? I mean, you you come to this point in your program where you have to refactor and you say, Ah, geez, I got to do. It's like you got to put everything you were thinking on the stack and then dive in there. Right. But if you've got somebody saying, "Yeah, that's definitely the way to go," you sort of, you know, you're like, you know, in some ways, it really compresses the whole process where you have analysis, design, coding, and testing happening all at once with with two brains. You know, making sure if if you're both agreeing, then it's probably right. If there's a disagreement, it makes you look at it again. It's like an iterative process that's happening all at once. You know, with 
a few minute cycle instead of even in XP they talk about okay iterations over you know hours or days or weeks this compresses it down so it's happening immediately hmm. and when the two of you agree and you can go on the chances are that you've got something right and uh, a right to go on cool well I, uh, uh, I wanted to mention one thing the secret sauce in, in a lot of this is the fact that your manager or the person that's running this project has to believe in this or at least be willing yeah. to give it a shot. That's something Sam Gentile said about, as he said, extreme programming. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Sam. Um, that it's really true is that the everybody in the business process, up, upper management, really has to be signed off. And everybody, in fact, not just management, but the developers, everyone has to believe in it. Uh, otherwise, it doesn't work. It's kind of like religion gotta, in a way. It's a wild proposition, <laughs> and it's coming from the developers, right? Right. So, and what the hell did they know? Roy, Roy didn't hear that. Right. But. Well, you show up one day, and you say, well, here's what we want to do. We want to write all our stuff up first and test it this way. We want to all program together. We want to go in the same cubicle, and he's going to drive the mouse, and I'm going to do the keyboard. They look at you like you're crazy. Right, and they say, okay, that's fine, but where's the project plan telling me when your end date is? Yeah. Right. Where's the spec? Well, guys, I hate to interrupt a good thing, but uh, we got to pay the bills and listen to some music, so uh, stick around, and and we will be... Right back in Two Shakes of a Lamb's Tail.
Hey, Carl here. We uh, have some room in our July class, in our August classes. July classes, August classes. And I just wanted to uh, put in a plug for good old New London in the summertime. Man, this is a great time to, uh, to come to this class. The food is great. The town is cool. It's pretty hip. There's a lot to see and do in the area. you got the Mystic Seaport. You know, you got the uh, Mystic Aquarium. you got Ocean Beach. you got the Nautilus Museum, the first nuclear submarine. you got uh, all sorts of... What'd you say? The casinos. Yeah, the casinos. Foxwoods Casino and uh, Mohegan Sun Casino right up the street here. Got the uh, Coast Guard Academy here. That's kind of fun. Rocky Neck State Park. Some beaches nearby. Man, it's just a great time. So, you know, bring the family and uh, hang out for a week. Eat well. Learn some code. Relax. And uh, it's a great time. Check out our classes at www.franklins.net. And uh, you'll be glad you did. Shout out to our sponsor at uh, Data Dynamics. I, one of the guys in the class asked me today, so what do you recommend for reporting? And uh, my answer is, well, if you have great big enterprise reports to do with lots of, uh, lots of clients and you need a server to handle the load, use SQL Reporting Services. But if you just want some simple reporting uh, to just embed the reports into your assemblies and your applications, whether they're web applications or Windows applications, uh, that have all the power of the reporting tools of the day that you need. Uh, nothing better than ActiveReports.net from Data Dynamics. Not only is it great, easy to use, and powerful, all managed code, but isn't going to cost you an arm and a leg either. Check them out. They're uh, my favorite reporting tool, ActiveReports.net, up at uh, www.datadynamics.com. And uh, I thought I'd uh, take this opportunity to play a little tune in the studio here. I haven't done this in a while. And uh, this is an old uh, old traditional American song. A hobo song, as I like to call it. Called uh, Big Rock Candy Mountains. One evening as the sun went down the old campfires were burning Down the track came a hobo hemming And he said, boys, I'm not turning I'm headed for a land that's far away Beside that crystal fountains I'll see you all it's coming fall in the bay, rock candy mountains. The big rock candy mountain, it's a land that's fair and bright, where the handouts grow on bushes. 
And you sleep out every night The boxcars all are empty The sun shines every day All the birds and the bees And the cigarette trees Rock rice springs Where the wangdoodle sings In the bay Rock candy mountains The big rock candy mountains All the cops have wooden legs The bulldogs all have rubber teeth And the hens lay soft-boiled eggs The farmer's trees are full of fruit The barns are full of hay Oh, I'm gonna go Where there ain't no snow Where the sleet don't fall And the wind don't blow In the bay Rock Candy Mountain Oh, the big rock candy mountains Not a place at all Just another state of consciousness Just a design on the wall The big rock candy mountains You never change your socks Little streams of alcohol Come trickling down the rocks And once you get there Find there's nothing much to do But there's a lake of stew And whiskey too And you can paddle on around it In a big canoe In the bay Rock Candy Mountain. Yeah. For American music, yeah, we like that stuff. You guys still out there? Hey, we're here. All right. Does Carl take requests? Hobo theme, King of the Road. Yeah, that'd be another show. Metallica. <laughs> Wait a minute. Let me get my fuzz box. Thank you. So, uh, so where were we before we were so rudely interrupted by all this music and advertising and stuff? Anyone? Well, we were talking Bueller? about. <laughs> Sorry, we were to XP, extreme programming. Yeah. Yes. And uh, you were. To, I think we were kind of flowing through a thread of, you know, is it is it just a fad? Right. And, and if we can take it take it down that path for just a minute, you know, um, there's a whole bunch of articles and books uh, showing up on on test driven development just all over the place, including one that's uh, been out for about two months uh, called Test Driven Development in Microsoft. Dot net, and it's by Jim Newkirk, who uh, had a lot to do with the the N unit port from 
from JUnit. Okay. And um, the nice thing is, is that a lot of the test-driven development books will only take you so far. They'll start out with like building a stack and teaching right. you to build a test based on that stack. And, he, and, and Jim does that as well. But the nice thing is, is that after he gets done with that, then he takes you into a short chapter on re- refactoring. And then it's like, okay, well, where do we go from here? Right. Okay, the next thing is, is okay, let's build a real project. And in this case, it's a, a, a music database and eventually accessing that through web services. So he ties in a lot of difficult concepts like test room development with a database in AD, and ADO.net and how do you do it? Yeah. And then the next one as well, test room development with web services and how do you get started on UI testing and, and all sorts of different things. That just uh, go make you go okay. Um, now I can see how I would actually use this in a in a real project. So yeah. um, there's some other there's some other books out there. Uh, Peter Provost has a book, Test right. Driven Development in .NET, right? Uh-huh. Uh huh. Benjamin Mitchell has a blog uh, that where he does, and he's he's a guest coming up here pretty soon. Right. Um, Daryl Norton has a blog as Darryl well Norton. that has just some huge uh, TDD resources, and another site that's just started up not too long ago by Jeff Julian. It's called the uh, .NET Book Club. Oh, that's it, interesting. It's uh, .NET Book Club um, org, and the book this month is the Test Driven Development book with uh, Jim Newkirk. So check that out if you mm. if you get a chance. It's good, yeah. some good stuff. That's interesting. We'll put some links up here. Uh, how about uh, Will Scott and yeah, Will Scott and James Newkirk? That's the book you were talking about, Test Driven C Sharp. Is that the one? Um, no, this is this is a new one. It's by Microsoft Press. It's just only like I said, it's only been out. Um, oh, that's about, an article anyway. Okay. Yeah, that's actually that's from MSDN. That's a great that's a great one to get started if you go to MSDN and uh, do a find on test driven development. That, we'll add that, a link to it too. That article should pop up. Yeah, and that's a great way to get started because he he kind of um, those guys summarize it in a very uh, very cogent manner. Cool. M- much unlike what I'm doing right now. <laughs> no, you're doing great. Oh, thank you very much. Well, yeah, no, I'm I'm actually really enjoying this because we've given a little lip service to. Uh, end unit and test testing, but we really haven't gotten into it like this. So I'm really enjoying this. So another question, just a common thing that we seem to be asking um, uh, whenever someone comes along and talks to us about a particular methodology is, are there any, uh, are there any like size limitations? Is this going to not work for projects of certain sizes? Because I've seen this done. I've seen unit testing done, for example, on very small projects where it took longer to write the unit tests than it would take to even test the thing by hand, right? I mean, it seems like there should be limitations to this. Is this something that's going to work better for medium to large projects, or where would you use this? Would you use it everywhere? I budget about, if I'm writing something, if I'm working on a task, I'll budget, you know, 50% of my time for, whatever I budget for development, I'll budget it for testing as well. I'll just double it. Yeah, that sounds mm. that sounds what I would do too. That sounds about right to me. So. Yeah, but it can Does get it sound right crazy. to your manager, yeah. though. That's the question. Right. <laughs> well, they double it anyway, right? <laughs> If they're a good manager, they double the developer's estimates anyway. So this is what extreme programming is all about. You <laughs> well, well, one of the other things that extreme programming does is they take your estimates and what you actually did in the first iteration, and they figure out a multiplier, and then they use that for you know, how much you can reasonably do in the second iteration. Yeah. Right, and as you go through these iterations, then you, you see what you've just done in the previous one and so on and so forth, and you get what's called velocity going right, with, right. The, with the project. And so your estimates start to get better and better on that project because you've seen, you've seen in a microcosm what you've done. Right. And that's, that's really how we try to run our projects. Interesting. So somebody asked uh, if they're using Nant 
this project. The project I'm using right now to do this, Nant is a product for doing the build server, um, or to doing an automated build outside of Visual Studio. And uh, the answer is they are not. They're using Ant uh, because they've got some uh, non.NET code to be building as well as part of their big build. Mm-hmm. But I have used projects with Nant uh, very successfully as well, uh, integrating NUnit right in there. Um, and it generates some nice, sexy HTML reports with green bars and red bars and yeah. nice, cool stuff. Cool. Right. And, uh, you know, this is a good time to actually pause and do a segment on the show we like to actually call, actually, 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 the Linux Vulnerability of the Week. Hello, Mr. Bull. Let's you and me fight. <laughs> you guys like that one, huh? Uh, and we're not saying who's droopy and who's the bull in that case. Uh, but anyway, uh, we like to do the segment to give equal time to the Linux zealots who say that Linux doesn't have bugs and Microsoft does. And in fact, we've uh, been discovering a recent trend here. Not recent, but we've recently been discovering a trend, actually, that's been there from the beginning, that a lot of the vulnerabilities in Linux systems have to deal with buffer overflow vulnerabilities, things that the CLR and even Java, for that matter, uh, take care of. So um, I'm just—I'm not even going to read the details of these. Just listen to a couple of these that happened this week, and, and these are most of them happened today on the 10th. I went, yeah, they're all—they're all from today, as a matter of fact. Uh, Debian CVS buffer overflow vulnerability. Vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Fedora 2.1 Squid buffer overflow vulnerability. Fedora 2.1 Squirrel Mail multiple vulnerabilities. Gen 2 had multiple vulnerabilities in CVS, which may allow an attacker to remotely compromise a CVS server. Uh, Gen 2, Apache buffer overflow vulnerability. A bug in mod underscore SSL may allow a remote attacker to execute remote code when Apache is configured in a certain way. Uh, And, uh, ooh, another mailman password leak. Mailman contains a bug allowing third parties to retrieve member passwords. That's bad. That's really bad. And uh, Mandrake has uh, K-Sysmoops insecure. K-Sysmoops? All right, Jeff, explain that one. It sounds like a cereal. <laughs> <laughs> it comes with a, with a CD of Linux in it, right, in the box. Insecure temporary file vulnerability. Again, from 6.10.2004, Mandrake, Squid Buffer Overflow. Uh, need I go on? There's several more of them, and they're all from today. So, you know, anyone who says Linux doesn't have bugs is smoking crack, and Droopy said it best. Hello, Mr. Bull. Let's you and me fight. <laughs> so... I just wanted to say, in light of all the, the Linux vulnerabilities and everything, and, and just keeping true to this whole we're not picking on anybody, uh, I don't think we mentioned last week on the show that Mono Beta 2 came out. No, we and haven't. We didn't. Uh, we're waiting yeah, for Mono so. version 1.0 before we celebrate. But what's new in no, Beta this 2? Is, no, this is still cool. This is still cool. I mean, okay, what, it, well, it's, 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 it's just, we're just getting basically getting like a, a, the next beta, and this is, this is the last stop, if I understand correctly. Did you download it's it? Mono you checked it out? What's it all about? I haven't done this one yet. I haven't. I haven't. I haven't gotten it up and running yet. But uh, cool. I am planning on checking it out. So well, that Miguel is actually Di- some pretty. Miguel Diacaza said he would be a guest on the show when it comes out. So uh, look forward to that. That's going to be a good show. We're actually. I'm very excited about Mono. I mean, I'm not. I don't pick on Linux. What I pick on is Zealotry. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. I love Linux. 
somebody's going to sample that and get me in trouble. There was so much silence around it. I know. It's, like, it's too perfect. I love Linux. I love Linux. I la, 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 love Linux. <laughs> Jeff's going to go nuts with that. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, uh, so anyway, um, you guys have had, obviously, a lot of success with not only uh, end-unit testing but other things in extreme programming. What are some of the other aspects of extreme programming that we haven't talked about? We talked about pair programming, unit testing, uh, several things. What are some of the things that we haven't talked about you think are cool? Well, there's um, there's mock objects. These ah. are objects that are just like the real objects, but they... That's what you get at a Chinese buffet, right? Right. You want to be sure that nothing's going to nothing's gonna really distract from the test, if you will. Okay. You know, so like if you're trying to hit a database or... or um, hit a web page or, or throw something to a to another uh, a lot of functionality that maybe doesn't exist yet you can mock that up in just a and just an object that will return something that would be representative of, of uh, whatever the object the real object would be Sounds so like for example there's a there's a, a whole series of .net mock, mock objects out there that allow you to mock up like the system data data set and, and those sorts of things hmm. so the functionality you know so you don't have to have a lot of dependencies on it but you can still test that functionality and then, and then hmm. drop it in later to need. Hmm. So I've heard you talk about code coverage, but I'm not quite sure what it is. I guess this is, has something to do with highlighting your code in the, in the IDE or, or color coding code that ran or something. Uh, you run your full suite of tests and then you go and look at the code and say, Hey, my test didn't execute this line of code. Why not? Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. This right. And, and so what that allows you to do then is make sure that, that you're, you're, you're not going to miss something in your testing. Mm, right, right. Yeah, and some crazy managers. Well, I can see that being useful all over the place. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, right. It, I mean, that, that's really yeah, cool. it's useful, but people can take it too far, right? I mean, you get managers will say, "Well, you can't check in any code um, unless you have 100 <laughs> percent uh, code coverage." Sure. Right. Sure. Gonna, uh, that's the same manager that said uh, last month. You know, we'll give you five dollars for every bug you find. Yeah. So, I mean, the question <laughs> you have to ask: If you run every line of your code in your test pass, does that mean you've actually? fully tested the system? And the answer is no. I mean, you can come up with lots of different scenarios where you maybe executed every line of code, but you didn't put in assertions to really check to see that the values coming back were accurate or not. You know, Mark and Joel and I were talking uh, this morning, I think it was before lunch, and uh, we were talking about the show with Rocky Latka where, you know, I was asking him if, you know, because one of his reasons that he doesn't like data sets is because they're just open and developers can just get in there and muck around with things without going through proper interfaces. And I said, you know, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, somewhat naively, you know, was, is this really a problem? Can't we just get together in a code meeting and say, hey, don't go there? And if somebody checks in code, you know, where they're accessing the data set, can't we raise a flag? You know, and he laughed. And, you know, and I heard the laughs around the world, you know, from that question. <laughs> and because uh, obviously I haven't, I haven't worked on, you know, big team software projects. So, you know, the, I've done lots of smaller projects. So, uh, you know, I heard the laughs around the world and, um, and, uh, you know, one of the, uh, the, the guys and, you know, Joel and Mark here were saying, yeah, definitely you, you don't, you want to restrict what developers can do because they'll use any means necessary to get in there when they, when they shouldn't be. And I said, so, and they brought up a good point and this is what I'm getting to that they actually came up with a system that might work, which is financial penalization. 
<laughs> you know, we dock you a hundred bucks for every flagrant violation of our development rules. And I said, yeah, now that's something I can live with. Cause if you got, you know, like a team, you're all working together, you're supposed to trust each other and you have these rules. And if somebody breaks the rule, hundred bucks out of your pay, you know, that could work. Yep. And that would uh, definitely enforce standards, wouldn't it? <laughs> but then people would just be arguing the whole time about whether they actually broke the rule or they had a really good reason. Right, right. Yeah. The committees and grievances and filings. And- <laughs> yeah, that would, that would open up another big can of worms. But yeah, And forget the 100 bucks. You'd spend thousands just on the argument. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. Would that be American or Canadian? Who wins there? <laughs> hey, we're getting close. So if there was one book that uh, VBNet, or, uh, yeah, let's let's try VBNet uh, developers should get for test-driven development. Um, this uh, book by Newkirk and Vorontsov, uh, test-driven development in Microsoft.net, is this like only C-sharp or is it VBNet too? Or is, is there another book that VBNet programmers should get? Um, really, I, I don't really think that there is a test-driven development for VB.net out yet. I don't know hmm. of any books out out there right now because john that's your language of choice right right um i mean i, I do both i i like uh given my druthers i'd probably do do things in bb.net um but yeah there's nothing out there yet so mm-hmm. carl um you want to get out you want to no, get no. up the show and, and and build a book on no i think john should write it i mean he's obviously got the uh the death wish i mean he's got the panache for writing so. <laughs> there we go can't you just port jim's book there you go. <laughs> Run it through the uh, C sharp to VB.net converter, oh, right? God, yeah. 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 No, there's really um, there's some some different blog entries, and um, mm-hmm. but there's nothing really nothing really out there right now. There's a couple yeah. of good places to look if you're looking for samples of good unit tests. Yeah, there you go. And one of them is NUnit itself. NUnit right. comes uh, with unit tests to test itself. Right. Right. So you know you want to talk about eating your own dog food. There's sure. a good example. Um, sure. Also, some of the new um, patterns and practices uh, application blocks coming out of Microsoft Pack. Man, those guys are cranking them out, aren't they? They're cranking up tests for their stuff, too. That's good. That's yeah. good. Yeah, they're actually um, – Barry brings up a good point. In the uh, sample code for NUnit, there's a VB.net um, sample. There's a there's a right. there there's one to get started on, and there's one called Money, which is which is fairly good, and that's a, that's a good way to get started. And in fact, actually, I think I'll uh, I'll do a uh, I'm inspired this weekend to do a test driven development article in VB.net with VB.net examples, and I'll put it on my blog this weekend. Hmm. So. Okay. Good. So, so John, how does NUnit or test driven development differ in VB from C sharp? Is there a difference? Um, Just really, it's mostly it's mostly the attributes themselves, and you know, instead of doing a square brackets you really do angle brackets um, <laughs> you know uh, other than that it's really you know uh, it's, it's a really a matter of syntax it, from what i've seen in unit works but the same in both ways i mean it's just a it's just a framework yeah there, there's some been some banter going on in the uh the chat room there about um, option strict on versus option strict off turn it yeah. on Turn it on. Absolutely. Turn it on and leave it on. Turn Option on, strict on. is a good idea. It's not just a good idea. It's the law. Yep. Okay. Exactly. And I don't know why. And for the for those of you on the VB.net team that are listening, please turn it on on by default. That's what I told you guys the first day, right? Let's turn on Option well, Strict. Just just yep. to throw you know a wrench into the gears because I'm in the Option Strict on category too. But um, John Lamb, a guy that I work with now, just joined Object Sharp. He's an Option Strict off fan. Is this John Lamb, L-A-M? L-A-M. Uh, his website is iunknown.com. Like he was the intellect guy and wrote books Yeah, he was intellect and developmenter. 
He's an option strict off guy. He's an, well, he's actually new to VB, right? He's, oh, he's sort of yeah. falling in love with VB now. Well, he that's got, that's his kind of language really? of choice now. Really, cool. I didn't know that. He's an option strict off guy now. And one of, I mean, he's got a few reasons. I'll let him defend it, you know, on another <laughs> show. But well, one of the ideas is that because he can, he has lots like this loose referencing, right? So yeah. he can call methods on objects that, and those methods don't exist. Right. Which, if you think about it, it eases a little bit of the friction on doing test first development because. You know, if you write a test that fails, well, it's actually not even going to fail. It's not even going to compile. Right. Or if you create a, an object that doesn't exist or you call a method on an object and that method doesn't exist, that won't even compile. Right. Do we really want to write code like that, though? I mean, <laughs> well, it's, you know, can you actually I, use an Underwood, you know, 1930s typewriter to do it as well? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like... I'm not going to defend where he goes, but, you know, it's like, his, his, his counter is, you know, well, I've got any unit tests for everything, so I know it works. He probably right. just like thinks of his design and then I'm oh, yeah. thinking, I'm thinking, there it is. He's, you know, Uber cowboy. So right. yeah. <laughs> so it works for him. So Yeah. Who else is uh whose weblogs are you reading these days, John? Hmm. I'm reading Jim Newkirk's weblog a yeah. lot. Um John Box. Uh okay. let's see, who else? Jim Julian or uh, Jeff Julian, Jim Julian. Jeff Julian, um that's those are you know, Joe on software. Barry Gervin's. Um, I, I read Barry Gervin's blog all oh, the time. Okay. Um, Barry Gervin, do you read Barry Gervin's blog too? Oh, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I also do. I also hang out at iunknown.com and right, you know. Right. Actually, I read the comments in my blog. I can't believe how many comments I get on my blog. I, I have a blog thread that's got like it's like a news group. It's got like 50, 50 60 messages in it. The last time I looked, just one entry. What's uh What's testdriven.com all about? And forgive me if you already mentioned this. I can't remember. Um, testdriven.com is a is a website that that um, really just deals with different aspects of TDD, and they've got forums on there where people, you know, pretty much do celebrity deathmatch with various uh, <laughs> various topics with TDD. Um, so it's it's kind of just a portal for uh, that people kind of are for the community, if you will, or one of them. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Hmm. I'm looking at something called Production Grammar. Oh. Do you know anything about this? That's uh, Jonathan DeHalleroos. Yeah, that's a part of MB, MB Unit. I haven't played much with MB Unit, but um, what is that? Let me let me go to the link and maybe I can describe. MB it Unit's a, an alternative unit testing framework. By the way, that guy who wrote okay. that um, just got hired by Microsoft too. And it's a it's a it's lower in carbs too. So <laughs> you know than, than than the traditional N Unit. So you could say that about the site because it's all in light blue. You know, right. How, like, low carb is now light blue. It's for more some like reason. periwinkle, wouldn't you say? Yeah, maybe periwinkle. <laughs> I know. What does Rory think? What do you think, Rory? Is it a? I, I haven't actually looked at it. I'm still daydreaming about code coverage, to be honest okay. with you. Oh yeah. I was actually thinking about how absolutely fabulous it would have been for a million different debugging scenarios that I could think of. So, in that company that you were working for, Rory, do you think they could they could learn from uh, listening to the show that you know when you were here, the big it's company? Tough. I mean, it's 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 it's, really, it's oh, you mean when I was out on the East Coast? Yeah, yeah. Or are no, they that, just like too far? No, no, XP is 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 not something. It wouldn't work for that them. Would fly out there. I mean, okay. it would fly about as well as a penguin, right? You know, <laughs> I mean, it, it'd have wings, but it just kind of knows. I mean, it, it's not because like they're capable. It's just because the mentality isn't there. right. Right. And right. as long as the penguin didn't have buffer overruns, right? <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I, I really think that's a valid argument against Linux. You know, that it's the managed well, the managed code the same aspect. Problems, though. I mean, uh, sure, it does. Still writing C plus plus code for Windows. Oh, okay, but managed code does not. So, but you have managed code on Linux too. 
you can write stuff in Java. Well, that there you go. So that's that's a plug for uh, Mono. There you go. You know, and Mono Java Mono, right? Mono e Mono. Yeah, yeah. Good, good, good. Okay. You know, you know some other resources, Carl. Um, sure. That that you can get for for example, like unit testing. There's a there's a series um, on the Code Project. If you guys are familiar with CodeProject.com, right, right, yeah. There's like a five part ser- five or six part series on just uh, unit testing. And it goes through several different things, even even test patterns. Yeah, that's Mark uh, Mark Clifton's article. Right, great stuff. Yeah, it's it's really good, and and you know, especially for the price. It, I mean, there's there's so many things out there, but that's a that I I, I frequently point people who are getting started in in uh, test driven development say download end unit. Now I'm saying buy buy a copy of Newkirk's book, mm-hmm. and then also go out to the, the series of articles on Code Project because they're very easy. They're they're very easy reads. And then there's, you know, there's a lot of practical information in, in these five five or six articles or so. I'm actually uh, there. It's very hard to find stuff on that uh, site unless you do a search or, or any. So right. is this and an article say, or, or a series of articles or? Yeah, I'm actually here. Are you there already? Um, yeah, and we can, yeah. we'll put up a link to it, but I see there's an article on advanced unit test, uh, part five and part one through five or whatever it right. is. Right. Uh, all, all great articles. Visual... Test Studio. What's Visual Test Studio? That's Visual interesting. Test yeah, I'm, I'm looking at a, I'm looking at a, uh, a screenshot of a of a tool called Visual Test Studio, the Advanced Unit Testing Project. Oh, I think that's isn't that? Uh, it's another it's another end, end unit derivative. Wow. So this is this is pretty huge. I mean, there's a lot of people writing unit testing stuff. Right, and that's actually actually no, I take it back. It's not an end unit derivative. That's another MB unit. Um, derivative, but there are, you know, getting back to that, yeah, um, you know, this is not just a .NET or a Java thing. There's an XML unit, there is an HTML unit, there's an HTTP unit. Um, so hmm. many different platforms now are embracing at least the concept of unit testing. Um, we just released a, a unit testing tool for for FoxPro yeah. um, called FoxUnit at foxunit.org. Wow. And um, you know, so People everybody, no matter what their what their what their platform was or what their technology they're using, they're starting to look at this and going, "Man, you know, um, it, it it really makes a lot of sense that I can write clean code." And and now that I'm seeing a lot of these, you know, whether you take XP to the bank completely or Scrum or any of these other types of agile methodologies, everybody's starting to agree on that. Hey, you know, test or uh, you know, unit testing and, and test driven development. There's some merit to that. And so, you know, it's it's being validated on many different on many different platforms. Yeah. Huh. Can can, can we get back to the HTML unit testing? Yeah, yeah that's what weird. Is a, what is what is HTML? What would you test? Uh, what yeah, what's do? the test that you don't have any angle brackets sticking out in the in the presentation layer? Um, basically, you like an open <laughs> tag and no close. Yeah, or? that's yeah. what. It, yeah, pretty much. You know that that your angle brackets aren't inverted or anything like that. But basically, what that allows you to do is some. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Really. Those inverted angle brackets, those are hard to fix. I think worked in Netscape before. <laughs> yeah. Um, basically, it, it allows you to make sure that, that that everything's connecting up. So your your class libraries are connecting up to your uh, the controls that you're trying to work with. There's a there's a variant of NUnit called NUnit ASP, and it allows you to go out and actually build tests using, like, for example, a data grid. And you can... Mm. You, you instantiate the data grid on the page and fill it and make sure that it's filling the way you want to. And, and make those sure that you're things. not using any obnoxious colors or anything like that. 
Yeah. <laughs> no marquee yeah. tag, no blinking tag. Right, I, no neon colors, no pink, oh, no. Okay, so what about Marcy then sideways? What, what about XML? What about XML unit testing? What would you do there? Um, you you're basically testing to make sure that your XML not only is well formed, but it's it's coming back in in the form that you expect. I mean, hmm. it's 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 another okay. way. Some people. I was reading a blog not too long ago. Um, I haven't used actually used XML unit, but somebody is saying that they they actually emit um, XML from a lot of their classes and then use XML unit to just run unit tests and make sure that, for example, the nodes are are uh, being created properly and you know the attributes are are showing up where they should be and things like that. So, yeah. you know, it's just another validator. Sure. Make sure you don't have any tags that aren't referenced or useless or whatever. Right. Because, you know, so, so a poorly like formed an, XML like an, document is everybody's burden. And isn't it good for the children? <laughs> sure, but so, so it's sort of like an automated validator, like an automated XML validator. Like you can wire it up so that it'll take a look at what's, what gets spit out and then validate the XML and then notify you. Sounds That's like it. Wrong. Is that yeah. I, I, okay. You know, if it's, if it's along the – the thing is, if it's along the same line of, you know, the, the X unit, the other X unit derivatives, then it's, you know – the test fails, the test passes, and then you refactor. So you're you're obviously doing some sort of assertions to make sure that whatever you're trying to test is actually fa- is actually passing, not mm-hmm. failing. Sorry. To, to abstract it a bit, I mean, all of these different derivatives, they do the same thing. They val- validate the output of whatever it is they're testing. The only real difference, you know, fundamentally is they're they're geared to calling or consuming whatever technology or platform that you're testing. So right. .NET, XML, HTML, whatever's emitting that output, you know, what are the expectations? And sometimes, the ex, you know, XML can be validated with an XSD, but sometimes there's other stuff in there. You want to make sure that there's, you know, exactly four elements. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking of how, how would you do test-driven development with XML? <laughs> That'd be kind of tough. Well, I mean, you always, I mean... I mean, and do we even need to? I mean, yeah. Well, you know, I think I think that the concept is valid. I mean, you have to be practical, depending on the technology you're using. Right. The, uh, I mean, if 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 you have a set of tests that test your XML and you need to add a new node into it, you know, that does something, the first thing you're going to do is go write a test that checks to see if that node is in the in the the thing you're admitting already, mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. it's going to fail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean. I, uh, Sort of another interesting angle on test first, though, on, on any of these platforms is uh, you don't have to do it when you're actually doing development to begin with. You can do it when you're finding bugs. So right. if somebody reports a bug, um, you know, you get users who say, I, I did this, I did that, I did this, and I did that, and it, and it bombed, right? And how do you reproduce that? Well, one of the ways you can try to reproduce it is with an end unit test. So you write an end unit test that exposes that bug, and then you give it to the developer, and he... He can clearly see from the unit tests um, how it's how it's exposed, and then he's got something to work towards as well. So that's another kind of derivative of test first coding is write yeah. your test to expose a bug. Right. Right. Um, with uh, just really fast uh, as we wrap up here, what XML unit actually does for you really is it has a set of supporting classes that allow you to test the differences between two different pieces of XML, like a diff the validity of a piece of XML, a transform outcome, XPath evaluations, which are sometimes tough sure. to track down, and then just individual nodes. So they've already got classes built in that will allow you to do that functionality. So it's, once again, with any of these technologies, like just like Barry said, it's, okay, what am I trying to test in the technology sure. that, that, makes, that makes sense to me? And I'll just do it for the technology's sake. Right. 
Well, um, you guys, uh, we're about out of time. Do you have any last-minute calls to action or, or shout-outs that you want to give, uh, you know, plugs or anything that you want to say? Uh, John? Sure. Um, shout-out to, to Jeff and Robert who are listening right now. Uh, guys, thanks for listening. And uh, just uh, if you're listening out here, I can't recommend enough to go out and start look, taking a look at any unit and test-driven development and uh, prove this stuff wrong. Get in there, and, and if you don't believe it, Try it out and see, and, you, and you'll get hooked. Um, you know, at Vision Data, we're an agile type shop, and so it, it's the heart of what we do. So, yeah, good, good. And uh, Barry, um, I'll actually paraphrase something that Jim uh, Jim Newkirk said at Birds uh, of a Feather session that I hosted in, at TechEd a couple weeks ago, and that was, um, you can't, you can't, you can't preach or lecture or evangelize test driven development. And somebody will go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to go ahead and do it. Um, <laughs> it just it happened for Jim. It happened for me. It probably happened for John as well. Um, and anybody else who actually, you know, religiously does test for first coding. And that is you do some unit testing, which, you know, maybe test last coding. And at some point you're going to think, well, I need to add something. And, it, and it'll just click to you that it'll make more sense to write the test of that first than it will actually write the code. Yeah. Um, and when you start to do that, um, you may do it a little bit gradually, but at some point you'll go, you know what? If I hadn't written that test first, I would have written my code entirely differently. I would have mm. uh, created a different API. The object would look totally different. How I did it would have been different. Because you get it from the caller's perspective. And from the, all from the caller's perspective, you'll just get it. And you yeah. know, you'll have an epiphany. Um, awesome. So you know, don't That's avoid cool. unit testing because you don't like test-driven or you don't get it or you don't feel it. Do some unit testing anyway. I mean, it's valuable for the artifact of just having the test suite itself. Good advice. Good advice. Yeah. All right. Well, John Alexander and Barry Gervin, thanks for being on .NET Rocks, and we'll catch up with you soon, I hope. And, thanks uh, a lot, Carl. Come on back anytime. Thanks very much. All right. We'll see you later. Wow. What a show. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so uh, so are you going to – have you been messing with NUnit at all, Roy? I've looked into it. Um, I, I, I snagged it for uh, for Mono. And all the tests failed. <laughs> there, was, there was some weird funniness going on underneath, and the thing just died. Um, I'm actually gonna, funny. I'm actually gonna look into it a bit more. I, you know, I, yeah. I, I had heard of it, and we, you know, obviously, it's obviously very cool. And uh, man, that was good. I'm really glad we had those guys on the show talking about it. So, uh, well, we don't have a, um, a namespace of the week this week. We just didn't get around to it, and and we don't have any swag, really good swag to give away. We're sort of running out so this is a hint to microsoft if you're listening send us some swag so we can give it away damn it and uh well on behalf of myself and rory and the listening public and mark and joel in the studio jeff maciolik on the sound out there and uh, karen caballero who we think might join us again someday but we're not sure <laughs> thanks for listening and uh you know what can i say keep on rocking and keep on using dot net we'll see you see you rory Oh, yeah. Time for